Well, hello again, and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. I'm Tony Payne. Great to have you here again as we think about how the truth of Christ crucified applies to every aspect of our lives and ministries and all that we do in the world. In last week's edition, we particularly started to think about how we interact with the world. We started looking at different kinds of apologetics, or at least things that are called apologetics, that are scattered all across the spectrum of our interactions with our non-Christian friends, with the non-Christian world. You might remember that last week we looked at the first four kinds of interactions. Uh, If you want to catch up on these, you can always go to the website and just quickly scan over last week's post there at thepainfultruth.online or listen to last week's episode, of course, if you'd like to. The four kinds we dealt with already were, first of all, persuasion, which is really just the reasoning and argument that takes place when we're actually presenting the gospel, when we're giving reasons for why the gospel is true. The second kind of interaction was kind of classically what you call apologetics, that is answering objections, responding and defending the truth of the gospel that you've just preached to the questions and objections and accusations that come up against it. So there was answering objections. But then we identified a third kind of apologetics that's quite common these days, and that's what I call preemptive apologetics or preemptive objections, where you address the obstacles or objections to the gospel before you actually get to the gospel. You preemptively try and clear them away or address them as a way of leading into the gospel, not as a response to the gospel. And finally, we notice that One really important function of apologetics, and where apologetics actually often does a lot of good, is actually building confidence among Christians by fortifying them against the objections and attacks of the world. And so we had these first four kinds of interactions, and there are three more that I'd like to briefly describe in today's post before drawing some conclusions of a slightly feisty nature, but we'll get to that in a few minutes' time. Okay, so we've done four of the seven types of apologetics. Here's number five, and I call it God talk. On our spectrum of where these kinds of interactions fit, this is right down the left-hand end, when we're just engaging with and relating to the non-Christian world and our non-Christian friends. Now, it's a bit of a stretch to think of this as apologetics. In fact, I don't think it is apologetics in any meaningful sense. It's more like pre-evangelism, you might say, pre-evangelistic engagement or relationship building. Uh, Ever since I first learned the term in the Two Ways to Live training course way, way back in the day, I've tended to think of this as God talk. It's simply the personal engagement and conversation that happens as we get to know non-Christian people and begin to reveal and speak about our gospel beliefs in the course of everyday conversation when we express a gospel-based or Christian opinion about a particular topic, when our Monday morning office chat includes what we learned at church the day before, or when we talk about our own Christian experience in some way, when we explain our behaviour or choices in life because of our Christian beliefs, when we offer to pray for someone. I think this is the kind of everyday, pre-evangelistic kind of relationship and interaction that many of us engage in most. It Reminds me of Colossians 4, 5, and 6, where Paul speaks of the everyday interaction of Christians with outsiders, the wise and gracious interaction that makes the most of the time. And I think the kind of interaction we we see referenced in Colossians 4, 5, and 6 
assumes that this is how Christians interact with the world and that we're to make good use of these interactions and lead them towards a more gracious, salty kind of conversation, uh, which is the word of the gospel. So that's kind of type number five. I'm just calling it God talk, and I don't think it's really apologetics, but it kind of fits into this spectrum of interactions that we have with the non-Christian world. This brings me to number six, which is, I guess you'd locate a little further along the spectrum towards evangelism, and I'm calling this positive reasons, or perhaps positive apologetics. It's difficult to label this as apologetics as such, because it's not really defensive. In fact, it's the opposite of defensive in a way. It's the process of offering positive reasons or arguments for Christianity and the gospel based on the reasonableness or goodness of Christian belief. This kind of interaction commends the gospel as worthy of consideration on the basis of things like these. It might be the way that Christianity so satisfyingly explains the way the world is and our experience of it. For example, Christianity explains both the goodness and evil of humanity. It explains the existence and nature of things that we take for granted in our world, like love and justice and meaning and personhood and morality and lots of other very important things like these. Christianity explains why these things exist and how we experience them the way we do. And so they can be put forward as a positive reason why Christianity might be true. In this category of positive reasons, I guess you've also got the famous logical proofs of God's existence, which seek to show that good logic demands, we believe, in the existence of an all-knowing, all-powerful personal God. You might also put in this category things like studies or examples that show Christians living deeply satisfying lives, or how the gospel actually answers the deepest questions and aspirations we have as humans. Or you might include in this kind of interaction the historical studies that highlight the essentially positive contribution that Christianity has made to world civilization and other such things. This is a best foot forward kind of approach. Let's show the world how good and useful and reasonable and attractive Christian belief and behaviour really can be, and therefore why Christianity is worth consideration, why it's worth a second look. Now, I'm sure we've all heard sermons or preached sermons in which we've employed this kind of argument or varieties of this kind of argument in various ways, certainly at least in passing, and I know I certainly have. Some more thoroughgoing examples of this kind of engagement would be the work of the Centre for Public Christianity. This is, in many ways, their raison d'etre, and quite explicitly so. You see it also in the argument of various books that seek to commend the gospel in different ways. The one that springs to mind, and it's a few years old now, is John Dixon's book, A Spectator's Guide to World Religions. The argument of John's book is that the religions of the world are like fine paintings in a gallery, and let's look at each one of them and appreciate their good points. But let me suggest that Christianity is the most beautiful painting in the gallery. Now, this kind of positive apologetics, as it's sometimes called, is much harder to find in the New Testament. I guess there's the way that godly behaviour adorns the gospel in Titus chapter 2, and likewise you might say that the mutual love of Christian disciples, 
is attractive. It advertises that we are disciples or apprentices of Jesus in John 13. But these are not really attempts to argue for Christianity so much as the natural outcome of godly living. And perhaps this is the place or one of the places for this kind of argument or interaction in a sense to provide incidental confirmation or testimony to the gospel as the good effects of repentance and faith are seen. And we know from experience that very often one of the things that does attract people to the gospel and initiate a gospel conversation is that they notice Christians living differently and living impressively in a way that intrigues them. However, I have to say that as an apologetic strategy, I worry about positive apologetics. I worry quite deeply because of all the kinds of interaction that we're considering, it has the gravest risks attached. For example, for something to be good or attractive or reasonable, there has to be a basis for evaluating it as such. So good or attractive according to whom, according to what standard or according to which values. For positive apologetics to work, it has to meet the non-Christian world on its own ground and seek to persuade it of the reasonableness or goodness or beauty of Christian belief based on what the non-Christian world already regards as reasonable or attractive. It has to adopt, to some significant extent, the worldview or standards or assumptions of its audience and shape the presentation of how Christianity is good or attractive in these terms. Now, putting it like that, I guess, makes the risk of such an approach fairly obvious. It's very easy to see how this leads to a human-centered kind of message that shapes the gospel according to human desires and standards and saps the gospel of some of its offensive power, we might say, the power which is encapsulated in the cross and the resurrection. Because the cross is not attractive or reasonable, certainly not by the standards of the world. In fact, it is weak and foolish by those standards, as 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 makes very clear. And in much the same way, the proclamation of Jesus rising from the dead to be the Lord and judge of all, this is hardly the kind of message that's designed to appeal to the intelligentsia. The reaction to Paul's proclamation of these truths in, say, Acts 17 or Acts 26 shows that his audience thought he was nuts. If you lead with how attractive and good and reasonable Christianity is, how do you follow that with the gospel, with a gospel that defies these categories, that in fact critiques and judges human standards of wisdom and goodness? The other grave risk attached to positive apologetics is that it has the tendency to make Christianity the message rather than Christ. Because the pitch is for Christianity as an appealing or satisfying system of belief, or for Christianity as an attractive lifestyle or community, or for the church as a positive agent for good in our world. The focus tends to be on Christianity and on the church, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not Christianity. We don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. So you might be getting the impression that I'm a little bit down on this positive reasons or positive apologetics, and I am. It does worry me. In its defence, I can see how this kind of interaction 
can function as a kind of preemptive apologetics or preemptive objections. That was type three, you might remember. In other words, if the world's accusation is that Christianity is life-denying and negative and harmful and awful, well, let's remove that obstacle or address it by showing you in response that Christianity is in fact life-affirming and positive and good and healthy. I get that. All the same, I do worry that positive apologetics leans too hard on natural theology, that is, that it tries to build a bridge from the world and its assumptions to God, and this can never be done. I worry that it ends up replacing the public preaching of the cross and the resurrection with a public pitch for reasonableness and attractiveness. I worry that it tends towards public relations Christianity. And I worry that it seems to put God in the dock and offer reasons why the jury of the world should judge him to be good and attractive. And this leads me to the final form of apologetics. And once again, it's a form that kind of doesn't deserve the name apologetics. I call it prosecution. This is type 7. If Apologia is the Greek word for making a defence in court, from which we get apologetics. Its counterpart in Greek is the word kategoria, which is to accuse or to prosecute. Now, it's not a very positive word in the New Testament. In fact, it's almost always used to describe something that's quite negative or unpleasant, such as Paul's opponents accusing him or prosecuting him of doing wrong, or even Satan accusing believers. But the concept that kategoria describes is actually central to evangelism and to evangelistic interaction because we preach a message that puts the world in the dock, not the other way around. The gospel we're commanded to preach is that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. That's how Peter puts it in Acts chapter 10 verse 42. That's the gospel we're commanded to spread and to preach that Jesus is the judge, not the world. And we see this in action in Acts 17. Paul critiques the folly of the Athenian idolatrous religion, partly using their own poets against them very cleverly. And then he calls upon them to give up all this nonsense and to repent because Jesus has been appointed as the judge by being risen from the dead and he will return to judge. The time has been set. Now, this is a good news message. It's good because it does away with all the folly and ridiculousness of our rebellion against God and our silly idolatry. It's good because it honestly exposes and judges the folly and evil of our world and our hearts, and then proclaims God's promise of forgiveness and reconciliation and new life in Christ. In other words, the gospel that we preach by the Holy Spirit, does what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do after his departure. It convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, this prosecution or critique can happen before we actually get to the gospel, in a sense. It can happen as we engage with people in conversation and point out the inconsistencies and problems with the non-Christian position. It can happen as we unpick the, the illogical and dysfunctional patterns of non-Christian thinking or practice, or as we help someone understand that the mess in their life does have an underlying cause. 
But it happens chiefly, it seems to me, when we preach the gospel itself. When we proclaim Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord and call upon people to stop rejecting him and instead turn to him in faith and repentance. Evangelism has this prosecutorial aspect. And that's why on the diagram, which you could see if you went over to the website and had a look at the text version of this post, that's why the diagram has this form of engagement, which I'm calling prosecution. It has it at a couple of different points on the spectrum. It can happen before evangelism, and it often happens in the midst of evangelism. Now, to describe this kind of gospel interaction as prosecution, doesn't it all mean that it's aggressive or hostile or angry or censorious? On the contrary, as Paul says of his own ministry in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, which is a divisive ministry, a ministry that some people love and some people hate, it's a gospel that's preached, he says, with a blameless straightforwardness and honesty that commends itself to everyone's conscience. It's a gospel that's preached with fear and trembling and with tears. So there are seven kinds of interaction that are sometimes loosely or might be called apologetics. It's interesting that we do tend to use the word apologetics so much these days, even for forms of interaction that probably don't really warrant the label. I can't help wondering if this is because our stance towards the world has become essentially apologetic. And it would be hardly surprising if that were the case. Christianity has been on the defensive in our culture for well, I don't know how long, let's say 150 years. We're so used to being attacked and criticised for being marginalised. Perhaps we've come to accept this as our fate and our role. Perhaps we've internalised the whole Enlightenment paradigm, that man is the measure of all things, that human reason is the final judge of all things. Perhaps we've come to feel the need to justify the Christian position as reasonable and acceptable, in the face of the prosecution of our culture, a now dominant culture, a humanist culture, that has been steadily criticising and rejecting Christianity and the gospel for the better part of two centuries. And so perhaps it's not surprising we find ourselves almost instinctively crouched in a defensive stance. We're reluctant to speak, because you can only get your head bitten off so many times. And when we do speak, we lead with apologetics of various kinds. We assume that our task, our primary and first task, is to make Christianity more reasonable and acceptable before a sceptical, accusatory culture. We assume that our task is to ask our hearers whether perhaps they might give Christianity a second look, given, you know, that perhaps we're not really as terrible as you think we are. Now, I speak here to the impulses of my own heart, and I suspect to all our hearts. But gospel proclamation by the Holy Spirit isn't like this. It's certainly not like this in the New Testament. The gospel prosecutes the world for its rejection of God and of his Son. It implores people to repent and to be reconciled to the God that they've alienated themselves from. It's not angry or aggressive, this kind of gospel. It speaks the plain and honest truth and it does it in weakness and fear and trembling. The gospel critiques and confounds the world. It's the kind of message we preach. But for those who have ears to hear, it is the sweet, sweet sound of salvation.
So there we have it, seven types of apologetics, or seven kinds of interaction with the non-Christian world that are sometimes called apologetics. This post, as I mentioned way back at the beginning, started life as a discussion with the staff at Campus Bible Study about these topics. And during that discussion, one of the trainees piped up at one point and said, it sounds like you're saying that apologetics can be useful, but not as a replacement for evangelism, which pretty much captures it. I do think there is a trend for apologetics to expand in scope and importance in our minds and to colonize the space where evangelism should be. Do you see this happening? Do you see it happening in your own heart and approach in the Christian circles you move in? Well, I'm interested, as always, in your thoughts. Do keep the messages and emails and replies coming. It's great to interact with you. And occasionally, as you've probably already noticed, I'll quote one of your emails or messages in an episode of The Painful Truth and interact with it there so that we can all enjoy the conversation and encouragement. So don't be surprised if that happens from time to time. Thanks again so much for being here. Great to be talking with you. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.